Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. It was when you came on your official visit, they played like the old school movie with the four horsemen and uh, the old school Notre Dame, and you got the... And there's a... Now that's a follow-up question, <laughs> Eric Hansen. That's a heck of a follow-up question right there. If you can be physical, and if you can take the breath out of somebody by hitting them, man, it don't matter how many yards or, or what the offense is or what the schemes are, that, that'll always be the same. But I still think there's a place for Notre Dame and the ideals of Notre Dame football in the wide, broad scope of the sport right now. Uh, Eric, I'm hoping I don't run into you in South Bend because you'll probably cost me around a drink. From the South Bend Tribune and ND Insider, this is the Pot of Gold Podcast with Tyler James and Eric Hansen. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Pot of Gold at ND Insider Podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football for ND Insider and the South Bend Tribune. We're getting ready for a busy week next week with the NFL draft starting Thursday night and the Blue Gold game set to wrap up Notre Dame spring practice on Saturday. Eric and I can pretend we know what we're talking about with those two topics, but we thought we'd bring on a guest who has been both part of drafting players in the NFL, having his players drafted into the NFL, and coaching the Blue Gold game himself, and that's former Notre Dame head coach Charlie Weiss. Uh, Charlie, thanks for joining us once again. Charlie, I wanted to start you off with when you were coaching at Notre Dame, how certain were you guys about where guys would be drafted? Did you feel like you had a good sense for how it would play out or were you kind of watching and waiting just like the rest of us? Well, fortunately, because I had been in the league for 15 years, I could call personnel people up from different teams and say, okay, where do you have them? Where do you have them? Where do you have them? And you then I could come back to players and have a pretty good idea where the personnel people, and if all of them have them kind of in the same spot, you tell them that, but sometimes it's all over the place. I mean, I remember before when I first got there, Justin Tuck was coming out and we had had this uh, conversation and I, I told him where he, about where he was going to go in the draft and he disagreed with me. I wasn't trying to, get him to stay but I wanted to give him the correct information so that if he wanted to stay I obviously would have loved to have him and I actually told him exactly where he was going to go and that's exactly where we went and he thought he was going to be a first round pick and he wasn't and then he did come back to me down the road and say thank you for your honesty that I was actually I actually gave him you know valid information Interesting. Um, I, I'm curious, you know, just because Tom Brady is still around, do you remember what your evaluation was of him as a college player going into that draft? Do you remember what you thought he would turn out to be? We were, we thought he was very, 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 comp- very, very competitive. And we were just confused you know, we weren't confused that he had the skinny, unathletic quarterback. 
that, that Tommy was because he wasn't much of a, he wasn't very athletic. He was slow footed and r- r- fragile looking. Mm-hmm. What we were confused about is when you watched on tape, every time he played, Michigan did well. And every time they put Henson in, Michigan would And what we were confused, we were really confused on why, you know, why Henson was playing as much as Tommy was. So, you know, you're talking about a, a part-time quarterback that you're taking. And just following up on, on Henson, and, and when Tommy was younger, Dreisbach and Greasy were there too. Um, what what were your thoughts on those guys? What were your thoughts on Henson? Do you remember what you thought about Dreisbach and Greasy? Well, I thought more of I thought more of Greasy than I did of Dreisbach, and I didn't think anything of Henson. Okay. <laughs> Charlie, what what are the key things you're looking at from a quarterback when you're evaluating those guys of what can make make them difference makers at the at the NFL level, or what can maybe prevent them from making that difference in the NFL? Well, well, when you're watching on tape, the the two glaring things that you're looking for are accuracy and decision making. Now, well, how can you watch decision making? Well, just watch his eyes, you know, watch him go, how long they hold the ball, you know, like, boom, or are they going boom, 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 boom through their progression? You know, they're, they're the things when you're watching tape that stand out to you more than arm strength, more than in mechanics, more than well, Philip Rivers had some of the worst mechanics of all time. And he had a wonderful career because he seemed to he figure out how to finagle that three quarters arm motion to get, get the ball out. You know, I think just as important as you watch it on tape, and this is where the last two years have been drastically different. I think knowing the makeup of the player is, is critical. I mean, you could talk, you know, Zoom all you want, but I mean, unless you can get a feel for, I mean, Tommy has always been a leader. He's always been that, had that special something about him, always, you know, and you can't, you can't feel that when you're watching on tape. You have to visualize that. You have to see that. So that's why I always question people coming out of the draft. Like Michigan State a few years ago, I had a quarterback coming out by the name of Connor Cook. I don't know if you remember him. We went in the yeah, fourth year. Sure. Well, my biggest question was this one. The guy was like 34 and five in four years of playing. He was a fifth-year senior. I think he lost five games over his whole career. Why wasn't he picked? Why wasn't he picked a captain his senior year? And it's a rhetorical question, but I mean, I mean, it's also a statement at the same at the same time. When you have a fifth year senior quarterback that isn't a captain of your team, what is that saying? Interesting. Uh, uh, kind of along the line, same lines of Tyler's question. How is that process different? going into a draft versus recruiting a kid, for example, and we can even take Jimmy Clausen, for example, how, how different is the avow for somebody that's going to draft him versus you in the recruiting process, deciding this is the guy I'm going to ride with. Well, see, when you're dealing with players going, getting ready for college, 
especially as you guys know, at the quarterback position, you're dealing with the whole entourage. You're dealing with their parents, their aunts, their uncles, their coaches, their, their, uh, their seven-on-seven coaches, their AAU coaches, you know, their trainers. You're dealing with a whole entourage of people. And, you know, and so when you, when you get them, you got to recruit the whole entourage, you know, and the whole, you know, you know, the whole family, as I used to say it in the Northeast right there, you know, whether it's the whole community or whatever, but you have to recruit all of them because they all have some influence over the player. But at the end of the day, you also got to find a way to separate the player from the entourage once you have them and make them just yours, not theirs, you know, and I, that, that's, a, that task is a lot easier in the NFL because it's a business. Yeah. I mean, even if they have some people they work with, it, this is a business, you know, they're, they're coming to win championships, but they're coming to make money. They're coming to do this for a living. So you're not really dealing with that entourage. Uh, speaking of, since we're talking about quarterbacks, let's talk a little bit about Ian Book, Notre Dame's quarterback that's entering the draft. What, how do you think he projects as an NFL prospect? I actually think he's a little underrated um, going into the draft. You know, I watched him a few years ago, and I just didn't think he was going to cut it, to be honest with you. Now, that doesn't mean, uh, d- doesn't mean I didn't think he was good enough to win games in college. But I didn't think he was going to cut it as an NFL prospect. He didn't look – he wasn't real quick on his progressions. You know, you know there were – the accuracy wasn't great. You know, his feet you, seemed to save him a lot of times where there would be games that he'd have some really bad games. You also don't know what he's being told. So you don't know about the plays that are being called. You don't know who, where the ball is supposed to go. You don't know if somebody else is, is making mistakes, you know, because it could be coach, it could be receiver mistakes, it could be offensive line mistakes. You don't know all those things. But as I watched him this year, I thought he blossomed, you know, because this year he didn't have the same supporting cast, you know, uh, as far as skill people around him that he had previously. And I think that because he didn't have them, I was more impressed with him this year than I'd been in the past because I he picked up his game. Charlie, do you have you really looked at guys from Notre Dame in this draft class at other positions? Is there anybody that catches your eye uh, that you've maybe evaluated? Well, I mean. There's a couple of different guys. I mean, the linebacker's a stud. I mean, he really is. I mean, and, you know, most people have him as the second second guy after Micah Parsons from from, uh, from Penn State. But with, with some of the off-field issues that we're dealing with Micah Parsons, don't be surprised if he's not the first linebacker who goes. I mean, he's a really good, young, athletic player, you know, who can run all over the place. You know, he, he's good enough to cover a slot, but then, you know, he looks like your perfect weak side linebacker and turn him free and let him run. You know, I, I really like the guy. Um, I actually, you know, I actually really, really like the big offensive tackle. Eichenberg. Yep. I, 
I think that uh, here's another guy who he doesn't publicly get a lot of love, but I think he's going to go play for 10 years in the league. You know, he's going to go in there. He's going to be playing. He'll be playing early. Wouldn't surprise me if he started as a rookie. Okay. And he'll be playing for a decade. You know, one of the guys that, you know, not as many people talk about, but I mean, you know, whether he goes in the first round or the second round, he'll go in one of those two rounds and he'll be playing for a long time and people will be happy that they have. Since we've talked so much quarterbacks, I'm curious, other than Trevor Lawrence, who's the guy that you're the most high on um, as it relates to the quarterbacks in this year's draft? I'm all over Mac Jones. That's who I'm all over. You know, like if I'm picking a guy for me, I'm picking Mac Jones. Now, Trevor Lawrence or? Well, I think that Mac Jones is more ready to play than Trevor Lawrence. I think Trevor Lawrence has a way better upside because of his athletic skills. I mean, you know, you remember now, if Trevor Lawrence had been in Alabama and run Alabama's offense, I, I probably wouldn't be saying what I'm saying. <laughs> but, I th- but because the offense they run at Clemson is different than the run- offense they run in Alabama. I just think that, you know, I mean, Mac Jones completes 78% of his passes. I mean, 41 to 4 touchdown interception ratio. I mean, people want to talk about him playing around a bunch of good guys. Well, then I guess Joe Burrow shouldn't have gone in the first round last year because the last I checked, he was playing around with a bunch of good guys. You know, it's one of the reasons why you win national championships because you're playing with a bunch of good guys. But the fact is, when, a, when you're at the quarterback position and you could be the man on a team that has guys that are, that are even better than you, that's a pretty strong statement to make. Okay, I'm going to throw a hypothetical at you because I always kind of wondered this. You and I talked before the 2017 draft in when Kaiser was going to go, and you said, boy, any place but Cleveland, and he ends up at Cleveland. And I'm wondering, with, with Brady, Kaiser, and Clawson, had they gone to different teams do you think their careers could have been longer or were they just kind of destined to be what they were in the NFL? Uh, the answer is yes on two of them. Okay. You know, Jimmy, you know, went to a terrible Carolina team. Kaiser went to a bad situation in Cleveland. I mean, Brady's situation wasn't great, but the holdout, and I've, I've chastised him several times on this, mm-hmm. him holding out, you know, you know, I didn't help him pick the agent. He picked the agent on his own. I gave him crap about that. But uh, <laughs> but beside, beside the fact, they held out, and by the time he went back in, he was now the third-string qu- quarterback, and it was too late. So he really – I think he would have been the starting quarterback his rookie year. You know, I'm close with Romeo. Romeo was the head coach at the time. They wanted him to be the starting quarterback. You know, they, they, wanted, they wanted him to be the guy. But, you know, because he held out, and you know, that was back when there wasn't a rookie salary cap, so you could actually negotiate for more money, you know, based off where you were taken. I think that that really hurt his start. So I think he was playing from behind. That and the fact that it wasn't a perfect fit for him, you know, as far as scheme-wise either. You know, and I think that, you know, you have to – 
sometimes you're better off going later in the draft, I mean later in the rounds, and going to a better team than it is going higher. I know you make more money going higher, but sometimes that isn't the best thing for you. Charlie, this may be more of like a trivia question, but I'm curious, who was maybe the most underrated draft prospect during your time at Notre Dame? Was there someone that you thought would be better valued in the draft than, than it turned out to be the case? Well, I'll give you, I'll give you one. Uh, I'll give you one prospect that although he was drafted in the second round, I knew he was going to be able to play in a league for a decade, and that was Anthony Fasano. You know, now obviously Anthony had another year left, you know, he had another year left of eligibility. He had graduated. So, I mean, that's the one good thing about guys at that school is a lot of them, most of them have graduated in three and a half years. So if they decide to not use their last year of eligibility, well, they're still walking out of there with a degree. But, you know, Anthony didn't like school. And he had a million traffic tickets. I think the day before graduation, his father had to pay like $5,000 in traffic fines (laughs) just just so he could walk across the stage. But I think that if he would have stayed another year, I think he would have been a a first-round draft choice because I thought that he could run and he could catch, and he was physical. So, I mean, where where some guys you say second round, that's a good deal. I think he was a first-round talent. Charlie, curious, have you ever seen Jack Cohn play the grad transfer from Wisconsin that's at Notre Dame now? I have. What's your What are your impressions of him? Um, I'm gonna. Have, I'm interested to see how how he fits. You know, you know that's that's what I'm because I don't know that answer. You know, so you know how it is, Eric. Everyone's a everyone's a guru. Everyone thinks that. All the analysts think that they have all the answers, but I mean, if the kid's a good fit, that uh, that then it'll work. You know, yeah. if he's not a good fit, then what would you lose? You don't lose anything yeah. by coming no matter what. It's, you know, it's it's a no lose situation from their standpoint. And just following up, you know, when you you recruited Tommy, you didn't end up coaching him, Reese. Uh, did you envision? just kind of based on his family background that he might have a future in, in coaching? Are you surprised he's the offensive coordinator at Notre Dame? No, uh, I'm not. I'm not surprised. I mean, it's a little young for the Notre Dame job, you know, like, I mean, I look at Charlie and my son, you know, he's been offered a couple of really big jobs that he, that he hasn't taken, you know, because, not that he's afraid of jobs, you know, but I think that he's earning He believes that, you know, he's earning his stripes, you know, on the way, on the way up and you have to take some lumps going along. But Tommy, when I took Tommy, you know, and we were recruiting him and he wasn't like the biggest household name in the whole world, but I knew his dad and I knew the family background and then talking to the guy, I felt that he was going to have a big edge over a lot of quarterbacks intellectually, especially football intelligence, not just regular intelligence, but football intelligence. He was thinking uh, at a higher level than most young guys do. We, we spoke to Tommy yesterday a little bit about what he thinks Notre Dame's offense can be in this second year as a play caller. And obviously losing a lot of offensive linemen, losing your quarterback, 
um, some new receivers, it, it could look a lot different. What, how much can a, a college offense really change from year to year? And that is that, is that incumbent upon the coaching staff to adapt to the players or, or do you got to get the players to sort of fit what, what you want to do as the coaching staff? Well, the, the second part is the old school mentality. It's got to be the first part. You got to figure out what your players can do from, from, from your reference material, from all the stuff you have. You have to figure out from who you have, what you could do the best and do a whole lot of that. That's, that's what you got to do. You know, I've had teams where I've, I've thrown the ball a lot more than I've run it, but I've also had teams that have run it more than I've thrown it. You know, so I've done both ways, and a lot of it has to do with who you, you know, who you have and what they're good at. Charlie, if you were still coaching in college, not in the pros, but in college, do you think you would have dabbled in the spread? Um, I think that for sure elements of the spread because – you got to stay up to stay. You got to stay up with the Joneses, if you know what I mean, Eric. You yeah. mean, you know, and I think that there, there's elements of it that 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 I find very very interesting, especially especially the quickness, the the tempo that some people you know run their offense. I mean, when I was when I was at Kansas and we were playing against Baylor. And our Bryles was the head coach at Baylor. I was fascinated at how fast the players could get lined up in a formation and not have false starts and snap the ball and get a play called. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was it was like almost unbelievable how fast they could run it. And you know, I've watched you know I've watched my kid learn under you know like Lane. Uh, Lane and Sarkeesian and those guys. And, and he worked with Bryle's son there for a short time too. I've watched with them working together how it isn't just the spread, it's the, the, how tempo could come into play and really put pressure on a defense. Charlie, the, the last few seasons, Notre Dame's best receivers – um, have been seniors on the roster and have guys that took a while to sort of emerge as playmakers. I'm curious, do you think that's natural in college football or should um, it, could it, can it be easier to get wide receivers ready to play um, and contribute uh, early on in their careers at the college level? Well, even in the pros, you can get a wide receiver to play his rookie year. And in a college, you can get a, you can freshman, you can get a freshman to play to their freshman year if they're good enough. You know, it happens to be one of the positions. If you're, hey, look, if you can run fast, okay, you can play. <laughs> I mean, because, you know, you, you look at Golden Tate, okay? Now, Golden Tate, you know, he had not, he had not, was not, was not a receiver when he came to college. I mean, when we ran no huddle, Rob Ionel used to run up the sideline to tell him what the play was. <laughs> I mean, literally, we, we would keep him on our sideline. No matter what the formation was, he'd stay on our sideline so he could tell them what the play was. I mean, so everyone else would be looking for the signal. He wouldn't be looking at the quarterback. He'd be looking to the sideline to hear what the play was right there. So, I mean, you can find a way to get inexperienced guys to your system ready to play at wide receiver. Not so fast to, like, offensive line. You know, like there's, you know, there's, there's other positions where, it's a lot more difficult to be able to do. I'm going to switch gears and ask you about 
Manti um, as a pro. You know, he's still kicking around a little bit. Seems to have had a good career, not a great career. I mean, is it what you expected of him at the next level, or do you think he could have been more? Did just football evolve away from his skill set? You know, you know, I hate to use this as, a, as an excuse here, Eric, but I think that all the stuff that went down with him right at the end, you know, really didn't start off start him off in the right. You know, he really got off to a, a really slow start. And I don't know if he ever truly recovered from that. Yeah. And I'm not talking about, you know, as a person recovered. Mm. But, you know, in the NFL, the, you know, you always hear the not for long. You know, um, I think he ended up being, you know, like kind of a journeyman linebacker. You know, start some of the time, back up some of the time, you know, make some plays. You know, I, my expectations obviously were much higher for where for where that would go, but I think that you know sometimes when you get off a slow start, it's really tough to recover. I wanted to circle back to your talking about Anthony Fasano and his parking ticket issues. I, I, it's funny because I I've heard that Notre Dame football players seem to have issues with parking <laughs> tickets a lot. Uh, is that, is that Notre Dame specific? Did you run into that same thing as Kansas? Is that is, is that a universal college college athlete thing? Or well, that's one of the problems, you know, everyone, you know, for, first of all, they think they're more important than other people. That's why I would humble them all the time. <laughs> okay. Number one, but then number two, you know, they're always running late. And they don't, and they don't want to be chastised for being late. I mean, so they they'd go park illegally or park in a, in a professor's parking spot, or you know, they they just do some things that were just either careless or lazy, you know, which w- would do things like that. So I know his dad. I know for a fact his dad had to write a big check. And it wasn't just for a thousand, I promise you. It, it was a big boy. Ask him next time you talk to him. Okay, so Charlie, you're doing the airing it out show on Sirius XM. And what else are you involved in these days? Well, no, that's basically it. I do that because I do it five days a week. So yeah. you, know, you get up early in the morning and you study for a couple hours and you know, then you go on air, then you regroup after that. And then, uh, then I have my wife's honeydew list. That's the rest of my day, you know. <laughs> you know, so you live on a horse farm. Uh, now, granted, we have people that help out in horse farm. It's just it's not other horses. It's just horses that my wife rides. So, uh, you know, usually, and and when you know, it's bike rides around the neighborhood, the little swimming at the pool. I mean, remember, it's nice and warm down here, Eric. You know, so. Let's see. I don't know what the temperature is in South Bend right now, but right here it's it's a little cool out. It's about 84 right now, so uh, <laughs> you know, partly sunny. You know, 84. It's you know on its way to 90 on Sunday, so uh, you know it's a little different. It's like your summer. Well, I'll tell you, I do remember it snowing during one of your spring games. First year. Yeah. First that was year. Nuts. Actually, the spring was wonderful. We were outside every day. We had 14 practices in South Bend all outside. Uh We didn't didn't have to go inside for any of them. And then spring spring game, we got six inches inches of snow. And you know the good thing, Eric, 
at least at that time, they weren't throwing snowballs at me, you know. <laughs> so, you know, later on in my career, they were throwing them at me when it snowed. So at least on this one, they just let it snow. <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay, I'll close on this note. Um, tell us about what what's going on with Hannah, because Hannah became kind of part of all of us. We kind of embraced her when you first moved to South Bend and embraced her story and the mission that was around her. So I think a lot of people would love to kind of find out what's what her life is like now. Well, if, if you can believe this, I know this is tough to believe, but she's 26 years old. Wow. I mean, Hannah's 26 years old. She's been living at, at she's been living at Hannah and Friends neighborhood since she's 18. I mean, and she's just thriving over there. And I'll tell you what, we've done done a nice. We we've joined. You know, we really jumped on with Logan with with Logan, and kind of bec becoming court. You know, really that that's our go to because we're not there. So we've done everything through through the Logan Center, who have been, you know, Matt Harrington, who runs Logan. They've been absolutely wonderful, and it's a very very good relationship we have with them. And you know, because you know, we don't really run the stuff there. Logan really runs the stuff there, and Hannah lives there, and she's treated like the damn queen, you know. So, and for a kid whose development is delayed, she still walks around like. Like she thinks she's some somebody special, so she's figured that part out. She's learned how how to be a how to be a spoiled brat, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks a lot. We really appreciate you uh, joining us today, Charlie. It's been a lot of fun. All right, now it's time for place your bets. How much you want to make a bet? I can throw a football over the mountains. This is our segment dedicated to the degenerates. Let's look ahead at next week's NFL draft. Uh, first one I have for us, Eric, is over under 17 and a half for Jeremiah Usu-Kormoa's overall selection. Well, after what Charlie said about Micah Parsons and <laughs> maybe pushing Jeremiah up a little bit, I'm starting to second guess what I picked, but I'm going to say that he will go over 17 and a half. I, I see him probably around 19 to Washington. Um, I think it's going to be awfully close to that. Right. But, but for our purposes of me being more correct than you, I will go over. <laughs> I'm going to go under so we can disagree. Not, not just so we can disagree. That was what I had. I've seen him mocked a lot to the, uh, to the Raiders at number 17. Um, and so maybe that's a, a way, a place that he lands. Uh, I just think he's so rare that someone's going to fall in love with him and say, Hey, we need, we need to take him now. We can't, we can't wait, wait and try to or trade back or whatever. So I think, um, his rarity will allow him to potentially be drafted seventeenth uh, or, or even earlier. Uh, who will be drafted first, tight end Tommy Tremble or offensive guard Aaron Banks? Well, again, in a lot of the seven round mocks, they're in. They're both third rounders. Tommy's pretty consistently ahead of Aaron. I think with both of these guys, what's kind of interesting is their best football's probably still ahead of them. Mm -hmm. But I just think Tommy is a guy that projects. To, to slide into that potential quicker. So I'm going to pick Tommy Tremble as going before Aaron Banks. All right, we're, we're off to a good start and disagreeing. I, I'm going with Aaron Banks. To me, I think you know what Aaron Banks is. I think, I think if you're drafting Aaron Banks, I think you have a pretty good idea of what he is, even if he may be able to play better 
in the NFL that he has it in college. Uh, certainly he played really well in college, but I think, I think, you know what he is. Tremble has a, may have an even better upside, but I think there's question marks, especially as it comes to as a, as a receiver. Um, and I, I'm curious to see what, what offenses do with him. What, like, is he a true tight end? Is he more of an H back? Is he a fullback in some instances, which is kind of how Notre Dame. Why can't he be all of those? No, he could be all of those, but I don't know if how, it, it depends on what teams need that. Um, and it, that picks ahead of banks. <laughs> yeah, right. So I, I, I'm not saying that I don't think Tommy will have a successful career, but I think because there is some less uncertainty, in my opinion, on Aaron, that, that he will be drafted slightly higher. Uh, next one I have versus over under three and a half Notre Dame players drafted in the first three rounds. Okay, in the first three. So I would have Jeremiah, Liam, Tremble and Banks and possibly Hainsey. So I'm definitely going to go over because I don't think either Banks or Tremble falls out of the third round. Yeah, I'm going to go over as well. We have some agreement there. I think those four guys, I, I feel pretty good about being drafted in that in those first three rounds. Next, over under seven and a half Notre Dame players drafted in total. I'm going to go over I, I think it's definitely going to be eight and maybe as many as 10. I mean, there's, there's even a, there's some fringe guys like McLeod who ran well that could pop in there, or maybe somebody falls in love with Brock Wright um, because he was at tight end. You um, the two receivers are kind of intriguing. Um, I've seen Skronik mocked into the uh, seven rounds. I, you know, Javon McKinley, somebody may fall in love with him. So there's a lot of possibilities, but I definitely don't think there's going to be fewer than eight. I think it's going to be the four that we talked about in the first three rounds, then Hainsey, the two defensive ends, and Ian Book for sure. Yeah, I, that makes sense to me, but I'm going under because I just feel like the last few years I've I've done this exercise, there's <laughs> fewer guys to get drafted than I think will get drafted. I, I don't know why um, that turns out to be that way, and maybe this – Maybe because there's so many different options this year that that it's it's more likely that it will go over. Um, well, who who do you think of those eight isn't going to get drafted? Because everybody but Book is projected as fifth round or higher. Yeah, I, I think maybe maybe Ian doesn't get drafted. Maybe maybe okay. the medical issues with Dalen Hayes. Um, maybe that is a red flag for people, and he doesn't get drafted. Um, so I, I don't know. I get those are a five star. <laughs> yeah, he was a five-star. Well, so was Tommy Kramer, and I don't know if he's going to get drafted either. <laughs> Tommy Kramer was a, a preseason All-American for a number of seasons, too. Uh, but uh, I think the NFL draft people will probably have a better uh, idea of the realities than uh, uh, than uh, some of those preseason All-American teams. So, I don't know. It would not surprise me if it goes over over eight or it, it gets close to even ten, like you, like you suggested. Um, but for whatever reason, I feel like I've always over – overestimated how many guys would get drafted. So I'm going to see what happens if I underestimate this year. Okay. Um, then the last one I have for us, um, maybe a little bit painful for Notre Dame fans, which former Notre Dame commit will be drafted first? Cornerback Paulson Adebo from Stanford or linebacker Pete Werner from Ohio State? Before I kind of researched it, just off the top of my head, I thought, why wouldn't Paulson Adebo go sooner? And then when I researched it, I see – that Paulson is kind of a third round projection and Warner's a fourth round projection. I know Warner ran real well, 
But Paulson Adebo was really good cornerback. Now he opted out this year, right? And I that must be why he dropped because it seems like he should be a lot higher than a third round pick. Yeah, I I'm going with Adebo as well. I was when I was trying to think if this was even a good question. I was looking. There's a website called NFL Mock Draft that NFL Mock Draft Database.com. And their overall rankings had Adebo ranked 86th and Werder ranked 87th. So they were one spot away. So that was kind of funny. Uh, so so given that, I, I guess it's a close call. I, I, my indication it would be Adebo too, but it doesn't see if you that that website actually has like these draft charts or, or like a timeline of where their overall rankings. I think they do consensus for all the mock drafts they've seen everywhere and. Um, Adebo has been dropping in the draft, whereas Werner's been rising in the draft, according to all these mocks. Who knows what actually the reality is? But um, I will go with Adebo as well. I just think, like, the need for cornerbacks like him in the NFL is high, um, whereas um, maybe the linebacker need isn't isn't as high. Um, so I, I, I'm, I'm guessing, like you, that maybe the year off has hurt him a little bit. Um, but, yeah, I think uh, he really impressed in his short time at Stanford. All right, now it's time for questions. Just tell me when you guys are, are we done with USC? Everybody's done. You guys are kidding me. That's all you want to talk about. All right, let's go. You can submit questions to us on Twitter before each podcast. I'm at T James NDI and Eric's at E Hansen NDI. First one I have for us is from Irish Fan 102. I know you discussed it last week, but since it's the offseason, please rank in order of likelihood. Marcus Freeman for one year, Marcus Freeman for two years, Marcus Freeman for three years, or Marcus for, and Marcus Freeman for four years as the ND defensive coordinator. Yeah, again, I think a lot of how long Marcus Freeman stays at Notre Dame relates to what kind of head coaching job he wants to have, whether it's a group of five, uh, rebuilding power five, an established power five, or a really good power five job. Um, when you look at the defensive coordinators that have been at Notre Dame, Bob Diaco stayed four years and left on his own. Uh, Brian Van Gorder stayed two and a third and left involuntarily. Un- uh, Mike Elko one year and Clark Lee three. So I will say three for Marcus Freeman is the most likely scenario because I think he's going to want a really good head coaching job, not a rebuild. I think two is probably the second most likely, four the third most likely, one the least likely. I think he's going to want to coach some of these guys that he's recruiting in this cycle. Interesting. I have a bit of a variance there. I I, I, th- I, I could totally see like him having a really good year and, and someone offering him a head coaching job that he would be willing to take and be really interested in in the span of one year. So I don't think that's the most likely. I think two years is the most likely, but then I have one year for the second, most likely then three years and then four years. Next question we have is from at Nick Blaschel. Could you provide a breakdown of the four positions on the defensive line specifically would like to know where they line up, what the responsibilities are and what skills slash body types lens lend themselves to each. Um, I'll try to do it kind of quickly. Now they've redefined themselves a little bit. And I think the biggest difference you'll see from what these positions were last year to this year is 
you're going to see multiple fronts. So sometimes you'll see three down linemen. Sometimes you'll see four down linemen. Yeah, they're not they're not always they're not always going to line up in the same places necessarily. Right, right. The other thing is, and just talking to somebody that understands this defense better than the rest of us who really haven't seen it, the defensive linemen in Clark Lee's scheme were kind of designed to make plays, whereas they'll still make plays in this defense, but they're going to be absorbing blocks and the linebackers are going to flow. And you're going to see the linebacker tackle numbers go up this year, I think, uh, just kind of based on the concept there. Uh, With a nose guard, I mean, you're looking for somebody that can deal with double teams. Uh, With the defensive tackle who also lines up inside, you know, you can have a lot of different body types. You can have a Sheldon Day who's low center of gravity, and you can have a Jerry Tillery who's 6'5". I think Notre Dame is going more for that guy with length when you look at Riley Mills and Gabe Rubio in the last couple classes. The big defensive end typically is strength over twitch. Sometimes you get that in the same package with Khalid Kareem, um, who was maybe a little bit more undersized of of the big defensive end, and that's where Myron Tango, Valoa, Mosa, Justin Adam Malola are going to play. And then the the Viper end has rush duties, setting the edge in the run, and then also drop some. And they tend to be the twitchier defensive ends, the guy with more quickness, so like a Julian Okora, and now it's uh, Isaiah Foskey, although he could play either side, Jordan Batello. Um, I think David Apui, as he gets, um, you know, older, that's where he's going to be developed. Um, I would imagine Will Schweitzer too. Um, and then if Osita Aquanu ends up full time on the defensive line, that's where he's going to end up as well. Yeah. Are you okay on that. Yeah. That guy's in a two point stance. I'm, I, I'm not totally sure. I, I, the, the part you said about the linebackers will be running more free and these defensive linemen will be taking on more blockers. I'm not really sure how that is going to pair up because, I mean, Kurt Heinrich was talking about taking on more one-on-one blocks. As the, I, I know he said that. So that so that kind of counters that. So I'm not really sure. I mean, this is like the hardest time for us to give anyone a true right. understanding of all this because I don't know that we understand it all yet. Um, yeah. And, even, I mean, this is a, a complaint – that people probably don't care much about, but like even the angles that the videos that they share, share, share us with, like are from the sidelines beyond the, behind the defense. You don't really get a good perspective of like where those guys are lined up, head up against the lineman or on the shade of him. And so it's, it's really hard to get a, a true picture of that. And I think that's intentional. Um, and, and even like, to me, like I, even like evaluating the performances of the offensive linemen for those video clips to me is nearly impossible to get a true sense of what those guys are actually doing because the perspective is so, so wrong. And I mean, Jeff Quinn would never watch film of his offensive line from that angle. I can promise you that. Um, so like, it, it's, it's really hard to get a sense of uh, what the defense looks like and who's winning those matchups and what they're doing the right thing. So it, it, this is a really tough thing for us to answer. And I think we're going to learn more as, as things goes on. Hopefully we learn a lot more next Saturday once we see it. Um, in action in the blue gold game. But um, I think you cover most everything. I, I believe the Viper defensive end is typically lined up to the boundary side of the field, whereas the big ends lined up to the field side. Um, and the defensive tackle is usually paired with the Viper um, and the big end nose guard on the same sides. But So those are probably the only other things I would add to that. Um, 
I, I mean, it, I'm curious, especially with the nose guard, like, are, are we, do they want a guy that's like Kurt Heinisch or do they want a guy that's more like uh, Lewis Nix um, that plays head up on the center um, and uh, can take on double teams better? I think Jacob Lacey might be a mixture of the two. And so I'm curious to see what he does, although he has he's had trouble staying but, healthy. You know, like Howard Cross is completely different than Jacob Lacey. Uh, yeah, right, exactly. So that's what that, that, that adds to the uh, confusion for my end. So I don't really know what that nose guard position is is going to look like. And maybe that's the that's probably not the position people are the most concerned about because everyone wants to know about the pass rushers. But um, I think that uh, we have a lot to learn still um, uh, about this defensive line. So apologies if that didn't uh, give you more guidance than you'd like. Uh, next question is from at Irish case zero five is Drew Pine really pushing for the starting job or is this more coach speak also over under how many different receivers start a game? I say six. I think in reality, if, if he's healthy, Jack Cohn is going to be the starter. Um, I think Drew is getting number one reps. And I think, you know, they want him to compete like he's competing to be the starter, but I don't think he's going to overtake Jack Cohn. I think what would be the best case scenario is that he's a reliable number two who can come in and help win games. If Jack Cohn gets injured, um, and I think you need a real strong number two. Uh, as far as how many receivers will start games, boy, I'll tell you, there's some guys that have been brittle in terms of injuries, right? which would make me want to say a larger number. But I'm going to go with five. I'm going to say the five are Kevin Austin, Avery Davis, Braden Lindsey, Armstrong, and somebody random that – hasn't quite who's Armstrong oh gosh it's Lawrence Keys I I don't know why I want to call him Armstrong it's Lawrence Keys my gosh well I, I will tell you I did this at 30 in the morning uh but uh that's no excuse I I have tried to call Lawrence Keys Armstrong his whole career I don't know why he doesn't look anything like Jafar Armstrong, um, but I've said it in the press box before. Have you really? I don't know. Yeah. That, I don't know that I've ever. I know that you keep track of every name that I get wrong, <laughs> and and we we're talking to somebody the other day that said called Griffith Griffin. Maybe it was even Marcus, Marcus Freeman did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I tweeted about that too, that the coaching staff has a, a epidemic of continuing to call Houston Griffith, Houston Griffin. Um, but that, that's fun. That's funny. I don't know. Maybe it's a, is it a like New Orleans, Louis Armstrong, Lawrence keys thing. I don't know. I don't know where you I didn't know who you meant. I, I thought maybe I, I can't, I can't tell you how often that name flashes That's funny when I see him. <laughs> um, and I have to keep, and I thought now that Armstrong isn't on the team anymore, it would be easier. <laughs> but I just wanted to rename him. The funny well, thing is I never want to call Jafar Armstrong Lawrence Keys, so it's not like I transpose them. That's I want them both to be Jafar Armstrong. Well, that's uh, I won't forget that one now. So that one's logged in there if one uh um I think uh I I I, I was going to pick 5 as well. Um I think if if I was set, setting a line I'd probably put it at five and a half. Um so I would I would agree with Austin Davis, Keys and Lindsey. And I said Joe Wilkins is the fifth guy. Um, it could be someone else, whether that's Jordan Johnson or what. But 
Although, like you mentioned, if you don't if you don't trust their health, the number probably ends up going over. Um, so I I, I think uh, still a lot to be determined there. Um, as for the Drew Pine situation, I think it's I think it's real. Like they, they want him to push for the starting job, but I mean, from my perspective, it seems like like the door is open, but like Jack Cohn already has a foot in it, and and Drew Pine's trying to bash his way in front of him somehow. Um, so I don't think it's likely that he will. Um, and, and maybe the staff probably felt the same way, but I think they wanted to get Drew Pine grasp with the number ones and see what, see if he could push him and, 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 and overtake him. I think they were willing to be surprised there. Um, and that's something you can do in the spring. I'm curious to see what it looks like in the fall, because I think you want to get some closure at that position with so much movement elsewhere on the offensive line and the wide receivers that it's, it would seem to be. You, it wouldn't be necessarily ideal to have a quarterback competition going in, in late into camp. I think you'd want to have that settled and, and figure out all the other things out around him after that. Uh, next question is from Joe Esquire at Sad Irish Fan 13. There's been lots of talk about the strengths of, of the offense last year, i.e., we had good tight ends and a strong offensive line. Do you guys think this year, with Jack Cohn as a pocket passer, we have the wide receivers to spread it out and make the passing game the strength? Well, I think it can, I think it has the potential to be better. And I, if I had to bet on it, I would bet that way. But I think Notre Dame's offensive strength is going to be its balance. The fact that you're going to be able to still run the ball, even though you don't have the offensive line you did last year. Uh, and, and when we say the passing game, we're also throwing in an elite tight end and Michael Mayer and two running backs that can really catch a lot of passes and do a lot of damage in the passing game and Kyron Williams and Chris Tyree. So I hope I answered that, but that's the way I'm going. Yeah. Uh, And I think the running backs are the position of strength. I think that's the strongest position group. Right. Yeah. I agree there as well. So that's why I'm not sure that I would really quite willing to go that the passing game will be the strength yet. I think he could compliment the wide receivers or the wide receivers can complement the running game much better than it did last year. Um, I'm, but I'm not sure. I mean, <laughs> we've seen so little um, to be able to completely be convinced that uh, the passing game is all of a sudden going to be the strength. That was kind of what I was getting at. And obviously Charlie Weiss is in, that, in practice, but like can Notre Dame really in one off season go from a dominant running football team to now being a passing team that was doing the things that you wish their passing game could have done last year. I don't know. I mean, the, the personnel is going to be so much different that it, it seems possible, but it still seems like a bit of a stretch. Um, in my opinion, that the passing game will be the strength of the offense. Um, Kevin Austin has to be the Kevin Austin. We all thought he would be and kind of Lindsay too. Right. Yeah. And I mean, <laughs> I mean, who wants to bet their mortgage on that? Right. Like that's a, that's a big gamble. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think uh, there's, there is talent there and I know it's annoying to keep hearing that when you don't actually get to see it play on Saturdays, but um, I think uh, there we'll have to see how that all plays out. All right. Next one is from Cheryl Russo at Cheryl R with a bunch of numbers. What are your best guesses for the starting offensive line? Speaking of things that uh, would be unwise to bet your mortgage on. Well, I, I'm willing to ride with the two freshmen. I, I, I don't, I think it's partially because I want that to happen. <laughs> I, I think that that would be so cool. Um, 
I mean, I thought Rocco had a chance to be in the depth. I didn't feel the same way about Blake Fisher. And maybe I should have said, wow, he's a five-star. He should be in that. But I'm going to I'm gonna make a bold prediction. I'm going to say Fisher and Rocco. I think Zeke Correll at center is the one thing that won't change. I think that's what's definitely going to happen. And then Patterson and Lug. Could it be Lug inside and Patterson outside? Absolutely. Um, could it be... Patterson and Lug as the tackles and Fisher kicks inside, that's a possibility. And I'm not sure, you know, Tyler and I have talked about this off the air, um, that they may not want to put the two freshmen next to each other, even though they've been practicing next to each other. You may want to split them up and have Patterson and Fisher next to each other and, and Lug and Rocco next to each other. Yeah, I, I think – like that, that makes it. It would seem really risky to put two freshmen next to each other. I, I don't, I'm not sure that that would be ideal. But, um, like I mentioned, I, I don't know that I need to see more with my own eyes to get a sense for like what those reps that we're seeing on film. I mean, to me, like the, the things that I take away from the practice films that we get access to is like who's lining up where rather than like who's playing well, especially as it relates to the offensive line, just because I think it's so hard to evaluate from that angle but I, I think from the reviews that we've heard what I would like to see would be Patterson at left tackle Spindler at left guard Carell at center Lug at right guard and Blake Fisher at right tackle um, and then Josh Lug is your next tackle Gibbons is your next guard um, and and uh, the, the the thing that Brian Kelly said last week about they're considering whether or not Jarrett Patterson makes sense at guard just was surprising to me um, my, my response to that would be, well, wouldn't you, wouldn't you rather try Zeke Carell at guard and, and keep Jarrett Patterson at center because you know, he's a really good center than rather than the, the, if you're going to play Patterson on the interior, why not keep him at center and, and have Zeke Carell play a different position? But I don't know, uh, how, the, how, what are their thoughts are with that? So I, I can certainly see Dylan Gibbons being one of those guards. Um, I think a, a lot has to do with whether or not they're t comfortable enough playing Blake Fisher at tackle um, and what their thoughts are on Josh Lug. Can, is his improvement at right tackle this spring something that they, they feel like they have to stick with? Or it does because you feel comfortable – even though you feel, feel comfortable at tackle, can't he still play guard? Or is there something about his game that doesn't apply as well at guard as it does to tackle? Um, there's a lot of questions to be answered there. And I, I don't think Notre Dame necessarily has a beat on it. I think from – from what I've seen, it seems like Dylan Gibbons has been taking reps as the number two center because they really need to figure out who the number two center is. So the last couple of days we've seen Fisher and um, Spindler at left tackle and left guard and then Corral at center and then right guards, I think it's been Christophic and then right tackle has been Tosh Baker as sort of the number one offensive line. So there, there's, there's all kinds of different combinations that Notre Dame is sorting through. So trying to figure out what the, what it will be on September 5th against Florida State is really hard at this point. You know what's amazing about that much talent is that Quinn Carroll isn't even in that discussion. As good as he was and as good as he's supposed to be, we're not even talking about Quinn Carroll being in contention for any of those spots. Yeah, and who knows like how much his knee injury has, has inhibited him if he still isn't back to full full strength and he still has room to get better because of that. And uh and we don't – part of the thing about what we see with the number one offensive line, we don't necessarily always have a good uh, 
sense of, okay, who are the, who are that, who are that much close? Who are those guys really close with? Like is, is, is the Tosh Blake, Tosh Baker, Blake Fisher competition neck and neck or as as Blake edged ahead of Tosh? I don't really know exactly how close those guys are and it, that could apply to Quinn Carroll and whoever, whatever position they're moving him around to whatever position they feel the most comfortable with him at. So it is i uh, I'll tell you, we all want Rocco to be a starter because he is a great <laughs> interview. Yeah. Although even though if he's a starter, I'd still have my doubts that we'll get to talk to him as a freshman, but, uh, we can always hope. I'm sure we would love to talk to, to, to Rocco. And I think Blake's a pretty good interview as well. Uh, next question is from Marie Biafore. Look into your crystal crystal ball for 2021. Who leads the team in receptions, total receiving yards, yards after catch, rushing, and total all-purpose yards? And for those who can't see us, because that is everyone, uh, Eric was miming holding a crystal ball in his hand. So, you know, he is serious. Okay, I didn't. I gotta think of the yards after catch one because I didn't. I didn't answer that one. Um, I think receptions. It's going to be Michael Mayer after hearing Tommy Dries talk yesterday. <laughs> um, I think receiving yards. It's going to be Kevin Austin, um, and I'm assuming he's going to be healthy for uh, all-purpose yards. I was torn, and all-purpose yards are. Um, defined as rushing, receiving, kickoff return, and punt return. Correct. And Chris Tyree gets a lot of kickoff return yards, although Kyron could be in the mix at punt return. I think Kyron's still going to have enough to hold off Chris, and but I think they're going to be one and two. And then yards after the catch, I I'll go with Lawrence Keys. Who, who okay. now I have his name correctly. <laughs> Lawrence Armstrong. Uh, it, you didn't say rushing yards, but did you do it's Kyron Williams? So you want, yeah, to- Kyron Williams with the rushing yards. Um, we have pretty much the same list except for yards after the catch. I went with Avery Davis there um, as a guy that could uh, lead them in yards of the cast. I like the Lawrence keys answer. Um, I think someone like Kyron Williams may even be a sleeper candidate there. Um, because they're not going to throw the ball very far down the field to him when they throw it to him. So the opportunities for yards after the catch will be there. Um, but I, I, I had Mayer for receptions, Kevin Austin Jr. for the receiving yards, um, rushing Kyron Williams. And then I went with you as well. I, it was tough. Like I went back and forth between Kyron Williams and Chris Tyree for all-purpose yards, but I just think Kyron is going to be able to do so much for the offense that Chris Tyree won't necessarily be able to overcome him with his return yardage. Um, and uh, although I think they probably will let him loose a little bit more on, on kick returns this year, but we'll see. Some fans want him to fair catch, and then some fans think they're the worst kick return unit ever, and so they shouldn't. <laughs> I don't. I don't. I know. But special teams is a very fun conversation to have with folks on Twitter. So um, I don't really know how the how that's going to play out, and I'm sure whatever happens, people won't be pleased. I think it's as fun a conversation as Taylor Swift recording all her old music. Oh, what a talk about a, a great conversation. Um, next question we have is from Bert Leonard at Bert2834. Uh, why ever take the ball first? If you are losing going into halftime, you have an immediate chance to get a score. If you are winning, you can extend the lead. You guys seem to know more than I do. I don't get why coach loves having the ball first. Um, I've been asked this question probably <laughs> a thousand times since Brian Kelly's been the coach. Yeah, I guess I haven't really changed my answer. You know, I've done research on it. 
Um, the, the one thing is it, it depends on what, how your team is made up and who your coach is. And so it's not a universal answer. Um, but Brian Kelly has an incredible record above his normal record when it comes to two things, leading at halftime and scoring first. I mean, it's Rockney-esque in both those. I, I, have, I have the stats, I believe, and sometimes this information is hard to track because you don't know if – I'm pretty sure this doesn't count like the vacated wins. I think it's correct in the game notes that I looked at. I believe he is 75-21 and 21 when Notre Dame scores first, which is a – 78 win, 78%. It means he wins 78% of the time. Um, and his overall win percentage is 59%. Um, so, the, or no, 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 not his overall. That's when opponents score first. His overall percent, win percentage is 68%. So it's a 10% increase when Notre Dame scores first um, it, it, as compared to his overall winning percentage. So that definitely is an indicator that Notre Dame is going to be better set up to succeed if they do score first. Um, in the I, I've, I've been asked this to you too. It's it's harder to sort of track the coin toss results. And so I didn't go back and do that last night, but I did go back and look at the eight losses since the start of the 2017 season. And Notre Dame did receive the opening kickoff seven of the, the eight times. The 2017 game against Stanford was the exception, but I, I didn't look like, I don't know who won the toss. So if Notre Dame won the toss and still elected to receive or the other team won the toss and election to defer, but regardless, the result was Notre Dame started off with the ball. So. Okay, but I mean, they could have flipped the coin and swallowed it, and they were still going to lose to Alabama. Right? No. Yeah. Yes, I, I agree with you there. Yeah, I don't. Okay. I don't. Yeah, it had no. They could have deferred. They could have taken the ball. There was no change in that outcome. Yeah, not many of those games were were uh, of a margin that would suggest that whether or not they received the opening kickoff or not would, would make a difference. Um, so I think it's an interesting question I mean, to me. I think like your point about it should be dependent on your team and, um, what you're hoping to do. And it, to my knowledge, Kelly's just always said, I'll take the ball first. And I don't know that he's changed that. I, I'm sure. I, I don't know. Maybe in 2012, it was different. I don't remember. Uh, but I don't think he had a problem with putting his defense on the field first. And 12. That was the only year that I think might have been different. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, I, you'd like to see some flexibility there. And, I, and to be honest, I don't track, like, I don't take notes during the game of who won the coin toss and who chose what to do. I'm sure there's ways. Well, that'll be your duty this year. We'll look that up to do. Um, so, um, I think it's just his philosophy. He wants the offense to score for, first and set the tone. Um, and that's what he's done. And uh, I, I think. Uh, like we said, like Notre Dame scoring first goes a long way in uh, Notre Dame being able to win a football game as well. And the last question we have is from Wayne Oosteroff at W. Oosteroff. How about a tribute to Lou Samoji? What's your best story about him that you can tell on a podcast? And also, I haven't heard much about who is impressing at safety, particularly interested in Houston Griffith. So let's let's tackle the Houston Griffith part before we talk about Lou Samoji. I mean, when I asked Brian Kelly about Houston Griffith earlier in the spring, he seemed to indicate that there were there was a lot of growth with Houston, and he was able to explain what the difference was. Um, and so he seemed to be pretty happy with him. Uh, again, we haven't seen it with our own eyeballs. I mean, we've seen 
pictures and video of him getting interceptions and knocking the ball away, but you don't know how consistent that is. Um, and then I think DJ Brown has played well, and I think they need to develop depth at that position. They need to hope that Justin Walters can play and that Kari G can play. Uh, they um, seem to be happy with KJ Wallace's play, but you don't ever hear anything about Litchfield Ajavon. Um, and so, again, you kind of wonder if there's a place that might get a um, grad transfer or, uh, or have a player move from another position. I would say safety would be one of those candidates. So um, I'll let you talk about the safeties and then we can talk about Lou. Yeah, I, I would uh... – the recent notebook I wrote about Marcus Freeman covered what he said about safeties. I, I believe I was the one who asked him specifically about the safety position. Um, and he was pretty complimentary, although to be fair, he was pretty complimentary about just about everyone. I don't know that he had a lot of critiques that he was offering in, in some of the questions that we were asking about personnel. Um, so he said that the entire room as a whole had performed really well. And um, Houston has done a great job. Um, DJ Brown has done a really good job of being consistent KJ Wallace has had a great spring um, and they were playing KJ both at nickel and safety. Um, he said Justin Walters has stepped up and that he mentioned Litchfield Edgevon had progressed throughout the spring. So not, a, not, not exactly glowing reviews about Litchfield, but um, so that, that's kind of what we know. I mean, uh, I, I'm curious to see it's, it, it didn't sound like exactly like that. It seems like they're pretty confident in Houston, um, it did. I mean, he could have said we have a really, really have a really good battle going on between DJ and Houston right now, but they're also not really in that battle right now because they're sh- they're both playing together right now because Kyle Hamilton's out. So I think uh, they're interested in in seeing how that progresses, and I don't know that they're committing to anyone for sure, but um, it's certainly a big point, uh, a big position that Notre Dame has to sort of solve. Um, certainly, Kyle Hamilton can cover up some of that, but you need two guys back there at the back end of your defense. All right. Now let's talk about Lou. And for anyone who doesn't know, I don't know how you wouldn't know um, at this point, if you're a Notre Dame football fan, but Lou Simoji was a longtime writer for blue and gold illustrated passed last weekend of an apparent heart attack at the age of 58, extremely sad news for all of us who liked him, respected him. Um, he was a gentle, kind man who I don't know that I ever heard him say a bad word about anybody. Um, I don't have particularly, specific stories between the two of us necessarily. He was, he wasn't a guy that I hung out with or anything like that, I, like away from uh, the work that we do at, at Notre Dame and stuff like that. Um, but he, his knowledge of Notre Dame football history was incredible. Um, he certainly was a guy that wasn't in the job for the glitz and the glamour. Um, one thing I, I, he wasn't a fashion icon by any sense. One thing that made me smile, he always liked to wear, the cap- he is a fashion icon. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Yeah, I don't know that anyone uh, would be uh, in a GQ magazine that covers Notre Dame football, but he, he liked to wear the kind of uh, giveaway jackets and fleeces that you get, uh, like with a subscription to Sports Illustrated or ESPN magazine. And those made me smile because I remember as a kid that I thought those were so cool as someone who's like a sports obsessed kid. And uh, I never actually, I don't know that I ever received one of those or that they would ever have one in my size, but uh, that was something. I actually reached out to uh, Dave McKinney, who worked at uh, Blue and Gold with with Lou, and he told me about sitting next to him for every game in the 2016 season, which certainly wasn't a lot of fun for Notre Dame fans, and 
Dave said he realized how serious Lou was, was when uh, they were sitting there next to each other during the loss to Duke and Lou sat there in silence for the entire game, just sort of taking in what was happening to Notre Dame and what was to, to come of the Irish that season. Uh, I, you know, the, the stories you tend to get from Lou are just weird examples of his freakish knowledge of Notre Dame football. And I, I use this in a little tribute that I wrote. Todd Burledge asked me to write a, a tribute to Lou. And I, I want to say that Lou was so much more than that encyclopedia-esque knowledge. So let me say that off the – but people want these kind of stories – so I was sitting in the press box, just joking around, kind of like I usually do during timeouts. And I, it was a downpour. And I said, and I knew Lou was listening to me. And I said, I wonder how many downpours they had during the 1936 season. And he knew <laughs> off the top of his head. I, mean, I figured that would be something he wouldn't know. So he, he remembered things that happened outside of the span of his lifetime. Right, right. Um, so, so that was from that standpoint, it was incredible, but I mean, he, he, I think what Tyler said, I never heard him say a bad word about anybody. Now he, when we're talking about like their, their character or their personality or whatever, and there's some difficult people on our beat in the past, all, everybody now is wonderful. Um, <laughs> uh, but, but, um, you know, he was analytical still. I mean, he was, he was fair. Just every encounter I had with him reeked of kindness and reeked of class. And I always kind of thought, you know, when I grow up, I want to be like him and I'm actually two years older than him. <laughs> um, but um, that's what I remember. And, and I wrote that in the Burles thing. Sometimes as journalists, we're paid to write eloquently and we, we generally do. And then when we're saying goodbye to one of our own, we kind of stumble and grasp for their essence. So I want to, I want to emphasize, and I know it's not an interesting story, but I, I, I go to the wall for Lou in terms of being one of the five most wonderful individuals, kind integrity, filled individuals I've ever met. And I would say that to him in real life. I would tell him, gosh, you're an incredible person. I'm glad I was able to say that to him while he was alive because he was just such a nice, nice, nice man. And uh, we can all take something from that. But it's it's been hard for me. This week has been hard to process why he isn't here anymore. And And some of it's the pandemic. We haven't seen each other. Yeah. You know, um, we're used to seeing each other. He sits usually right behind us or right behind. Yeah. Tyler and I sit in the front row and Lou is usually right behind me. And I'm waiting for his question about uh, something about the depth chart, the fourth and the fifth string tight ends. And um, that's why I kind of asked that question this week. Yeah. The depth, the depth chart and always about like weight loss or weight gain. He always wanted to know specifics. And those are good questions. Those are like, they are because we all feast on that. We're yeah, like, I was, I was, I was just writing about uh, who was it? I think it was. Oh, it was Myron Tagovailoa, and he spoke last Saturday, right? And yeah. Lou wasn't there for that because he passed away that Saturday. 
And I didn't know how much weight he gained or lost because no one asked. And Lou sure as hell would have asked that question if he was allowed to speak through the Zoom of, okay, well, what, what, were you, what did you used to weigh? What do you weigh now? Um, and those are the kind of details you need as a reporter. And, and those are the things that Lou was a stickler for. Um, and like you mentioned about, he was talking about 1936. I, I wouldn't have, I don't know that I would have been, I probably would have guessed Lou was a decade older than he was just because he knew so much going back so long that I don't know that I would have been able to place exactly what his age was um, just because the, the span of his knowledge was not the span of his lifetime. It was well beyond that. And so um, I'm sure everyone, if you're following Notre Dame football in any way, you've probably heard a lot of glowing things about Lou Simoji in the past week and, and rightfully so he was a great man. All right, that's it for today's episode of Pot of Gold. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you like what you hear, shoot us some stars and leave a review. We'll be back next week to preview the Blue Gold game. Until then, stick with NDInsider.com for all your Notre Dame spring football coverage needs.